There we go. Good. Come on up. Hey, guys. Good to see everyone. Come on up. Find a spot to sit. All right. Okay, some room over here, guys, if you want to come sit. Good. Keep coming up. All right. Good to see everyone. All right. So I want you to raise your hand if you've ever moved to a new house. Has anybody ever moved to a new house? Lots of you. Good. Okay. Now, one of the things you need to do, you can put your hands down. One of the things you need to do when you move to a new house is you have to pack up all your stuff and take it with you, right? So you might grab a suitcase or a bunch of boxes, right? And you pack up all your stuff in the suitcase and you, you take it to the new house, right? But usually when you move, you don't take everything, right? For those of you who moved, you know that sometimes you, you have to choose. Yeah, I know. Sometimes you, you can't fit a bed in a suitcase, right? So, right, of course. So sometimes you have to decide. Sometimes you have to decide what to pack up and take with you to the new house and what to leave behind, right? Yeah, I can't take your closet. Lots of stuff you have to leave behind. Now, we as a church, we're going to move to a new building, right? And that's going to take place in three weeks, all right? Only three weeks. And so we have to leave behind and decide what we're going to pack up and take with us to the new building and what things we're going to leave behind and, and not take with us, all right? So the last three messages here at this building, we're going to start looking at some of the spiritual things that we want to take with us as we go to a, a new building and some of the spiritual things that we might want to leave behind and not take with us, all right? So on the piano here, I've listed a, a number of things, and we're going to discuss a couple of these each of these last three weeks here as we go. So we're going to start with God's Word. Jordan, can you grab that green one there and hand it to me? Good job. All right. So God's Word, what do you think? Do you think this is something we want to take with us or something we want to leave behind? Take with us. Oh, good. You're all, you're all smart people. Good job. We want to take that with us, right? Because God is great, and He's created all things, and God knows all things. And whatever God says in His Word, the Bible, is true, and it's right, and it's good, and it's meaningful to us. And so that's all good stuff, right? So God has given us the Bible, and so we want to read it. We want to try to understand it. We want to continue to teach and preach it. We want to look in God's Word so we can learn more about who God is and what He's done for us. And we want to apply what we read in God's Word to our lives personally, right? And together, right? So we want to take that with. Next, we're going to look at pride. Kellen, can you grab the white one up there? All right, pride. Now, is pride something you think we want to take with us or leave behind? Yeah, leave behind. Yeah, you guys are right on. Something we want to leave behind, right? Should we be prideful? And think that we know better than God? No. No? Should we say that we know better than what God tells us in His Word? No. No? Should we say that we want to do our own things and do things our own way and not according to God's Word? No. No, that would be very prideful, right? Thinking that we're better than we know better than God. That would be very prideful. And so we have two things this morning we're looking at. God's Word and pride. So which are we going to take with us? God's Word. So we're going to pack this up in the suitcase. There we go. We're going to pack up God's Word. We're going to take that with us as we go. And then what about pride? Do we want to take that with us? 
No. You think we should throw in the garbage? All right. We'll throw that one in the garbage. We'll leave that behind. All right? Good. So thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat and listen as Pastor Jeremy tells us more. Yeah, so in a few short weeks, we will be moving. As Pastor Jeff said, uh, one of the things you got to do when you move is figure out what you're taking and what you're leaving. And a lot of people in move leave a lot for the people that you don't want, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to talk, talk mainly about spiritual things in relationship to God. A few texts we're going to be in this morning. Our home text for the next three weeks is going to be Colossians 3, <clears throat> 1 to 14. So we'll read that. And then I also want to read 1 Kings 6, 12 and 13, which will be the main focus here this morning. So Colossians 3, 1 to 14, and 1 Kings 6, 12 to 13. I should turn there too, huh? All right, for, uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of the, its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, or, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, uh, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So next week, that'll be the main text we focus on, but that's the idea. We want to take off, leave behind certain things and put on others. And so what is it for this week? It's 1 Kings 6. Uh, let's see, 1 Kings 6, 12 and 13. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among my, the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Let's pray. Holy Father, salvation is far from the wicked because they do not seek your statutes. May it not be so with us who call on your name. Great is your mercy. Please give us life according to your rules. Teach us never to swerve from your testimonies. Teach us to love your precepts for the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Colossians 3 we have a, a position. We've been raised with Christ. That's our reality as believers. Another way to say it is, we are not what we see. Right? 
You, your main reality isn't that you're seated here. Your main reality is that because Christ has ascended and seated at the right hand of God, and because you are in Him, you are seated with Christ. That's true of you. So what you can't see is more true of you than what you can. This is why we have to have faith as believers. That, that, that's who we are. And because that is our place, we should live like that now. Because our main reality is, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that should impact, affect how you live here and now. That's the point of Colossians 3. You should put to death what is out of step with being raised with Christ. And you saw the list there. And you should put on what uh, is in step with being raised with Christ. That should be nothing new to you. And so what I want to do for the next three weeks is, okay, we're moving to a new building. We are Christians. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Let's, let's look at some particulars of what we want to put off and what we want to put on. What do we want to put to death, leave behind in our move? And what do we want to put on, take with us? In 1 Kings 6, you could see in verse 12 that the context here includes Solomon building the temple. If you look at 6.1, the little heading above it, if your Bible has headings, uh, it says Solomon builds the temple. So the context here is a new building, a new place for God's or worship of God. The temple is being constructed. But you'll notice in verse 12 that God's blessing on his people wasn't dependent on the building, but on their faith-filled obedience to God. You see that? Right? Concerning this house, if you will walk in my statutes, if you obey my rules, if you'll keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word, 13, and then I will dwell among my children. So, what do we want to take with us? We want to take with us fear of God. We want to take with us faith that leads to growing repentance and obedience. Why? Because we want God's blessing. Because we want God's favor. Because we fear God. Because we fear God. Because we know that in this move to a new building, there will be temptations that we haven't faced here. There will be things that confront us that we want to consider beforehand. When a family moves, there's stress. The temptations not to love each other. There's going to be temptations for you to want it a certain way and it's not going to meet your expectation and you're going to have to decide if you're going to submit to church leadership and love others or if you're going to demand your own way. There's lots of money involved. There's going to be temptations toward greed. We're going to be more publicly visible. There's going to be pressure there. We're going to have 400 seats and we're going to want to fill them and there's going to be pressure there. There's going to be temptations toward pride there. So today what I want to do is urge us to take with us a fear of God, faith in God that leads to obedience and leave behind our pride. 
We're also going to look at Jeremiah 13 in a bit, and there it gives us a definition of pride, uh, which is just simply thinking what you think is more uh, is better. In First Kings 6, and since we're moving to a building, I thought let's just take a moment and walk through uh, the scope of Scripture of, of building. A, a, a significant theme in Scripture is work and buildings. It's not a small theme in Scripture. It begins in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, after God created Adam and Eve, he gave Adam a charge to work and to cultivate, that is, to build. It would be normal for human beings creating God's image to be builders, to make things new, to make them better. This was the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve. They were placed in a earth, but only had one little pit of it that was particularly created, fashioned, fit for human habitation. And their charge would be to expand the borders of the garden, to build, to work, to make the whole earth an Eden. Now, of course, you know, because of sin, they didn't do it. They refused God's commands. They thought more highly of their thinking than of God's own word. And the major outworking of that is just a few chapters later, in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. There is the cultural commandment being fulfilled, building. But instead of going to all the earth to build, what did they do? In fear, they all came together and congregated in one place and tried to build a building, not as a testimony to God's glory, but a testimony to theirs. So they took this commandment to build and did it in disobedience to God. Instead of spreading out and building, they came together and built according to their own thinking. So there already we have two instances of God commanding us to build in Genesis 2 and Genesis 11, and us taking our own thinking, our best thinking, our own thoughts, and elevating them above God's word. But God had set out to redeem his people, to redeem this earth, and so he gave them instructions first for a tabernacle and then a temple. And all of the imagery in the tabernacle and the temple are are Eden, of a garden. There's fruit. There's creation motifs. There's cherubim. He was commanding them to build an Eden-like place where he could dwell among his people. We see that in 1 Kings 6. God cares about the construction. He's in all the details of it. He comes and dwells among his people by inhabiting the temple, the tabernacle that they had constructed. But you see in 1 Kings 6 that the blessing of God's presence wasn't contingent mainly on the beauty of the building, but on the holiness of his people. That's a theme when we get into this buildings thing. The building, the Eden, the temple... Even the New Jerusalem is all about God's presence with his people, which is contingent, not upon the quality of the construction, but on the faithful, growing repentance and obedience of God's people. And you know that Israel was not obedient. God said if they would walk in his statutes and obey his rules, he would dwell among them, and they refused generation after generation of refusal to repent and believe God's word and obey him gladly from the heart. And every, at every turn, God met with stubborn refusal to obey his word. And finally, when Christ came, you might remember that he 
prophesied and predicted the destruction of the temple. All of the stones would be torn down. Why did that happen? Why did that magnificent building get torn down first in the Old Testament prior to the Babylonian captivity? Secondly, in AD 70, when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, why did that happen? Was it because the construction wasn't good enough? Wasn't it because of the faithlessness of God's people and their disobedience to his word? But that was part of God's saving plan, wasn't it? It was never about a physical building where God would dwell. It was always about God dwelling in and among his people through Christ. And so Christ then becomes the new temple, the dwelling place of God. His name, Emmanuel, we're going to celebrate here at Christmas, means God with us. When, God, when Christ was here, God was physically, visibly dwelling with his people. And now we, the church in 1 Corinthians 3, we individual believers in 1 Corinthians 6 are the dwelling place of God. And so we have this shift in emphasis of this building motif throughout Scripture. In the Old Covenant, the building was the place where God dwelled. In the New Covenant, it's the people. So there is this shift of emphasis from the physical construction of a building to the people. We now are the church. We now are the dwelling place of God. And so whatever building we inhabit, it's infinitely more important, our obedience by faith than the construction of a building. Even at the very end of time, after Christ returns and this world is remade and it is a worldwide Eden as it should have been in the beginning, we will dwell in God's presence and there will be no more sin. So we have this transition from old to new, from a central worship location to anywhere, a focus now on building up God's people in the Bible. We are, there is still this building motif in the new covenant, but it's not building buildings, it's building people so that we all might come to maturity in Christ. So I want to say two things here. Physical buildings matter to God. One ancient Christian heresy is to deny the importance of the physical and elevate only the importance of the spiritual. What you do with your body doesn't matter. What you do with physical buildings doesn't matter. Quality of music doesn't matter. What only matters is your heart, your spirit. That's not true in Christianity. Physical things matter. Quality of construction matters. Paul tells us that we, whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. So in this new building, if you've seen it, I think you should be thankful. The quality of construction there has been great. God has given us very skillful people. He has endued them with skills and gifts and talents, and they have put them to use. Their craftsmanship, their gifting, to create a building that is glorifying the God. Another way to say it is, the reason that everything matters to God's glory is because everything is saying something about God. This is something we've lost in our contemporary world. The kind of building that you live in is communicating something about God. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. God's creation, God's building is saying something about God. That's true about everything in our world. The building, how we take care of it, how we fashion it, how we use it, 
is saying something about what we believe about God. So hopefully, as we do quality construction, as we try to make it good, excellent, that is saying that we believe God is good, that we believe God is excellent, that we believe God is great. We put in a great sound system there. That means we believe God cares about excellence, that we want to sing loud to God. So we're saying something about God in the physical. That matters, brothers and sisters. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to cover everything in plastic and have signs all over warning you not to bring stuff here or do this there. We want the building to be used. We want the carpet in 10 years to look worn. We want the seats to look worn. We want to use our building wisely and well. Okay? There's a temptation, particularly for women, to uh, keep their house well, but then look like it's not lived in. You know what I mean? Come on. We don't want to do that in our building. We want it to look like it's lived in. We want to look like it's there for a family, and it's messy sometimes. It's okay. Right? The first person to spill their coffee, praise the Lord. Right? It's good. But that being said, the physical matters, the emphasis in the Bible is always on the holiness of God's people. On our faith working in obedience. Listen to that phrase really well. There is a ditch on each side of this talk of obedience or sanctification. One ditch is legalism. Where it's just all about form. It's all about the external obedience, no matter the condition of the heart. We elevate even some of our rules over God's rules. We're not talking about that. On the other ditch is license. We don't talk about obedience at all. Just God loves you and we're flowery and it doesn't matter how you act. It doesn't matter how you treat each other. As long as you say you love Jesus. We don't want that either. Paul says that he preaches the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith of God's people. That is, in the gospel, we do receive pardon from God. And in that same gospel, we receive power to live in obedience to God. We receive forgiveness of all of our sins, and we receive freedom from continuing to be slave to our sin and walk in obedience. So we're talking about faith in God that leads us to obey God. Because it does take faith to obey. It takes faith, trust in God, to take God at His word and, and say, okay, God, I know your word says this, but the world says this. Even my internal heart says this, but your word is right, and I'm going to believe it because you're God. That's what we're talking about here this morning. So the building's purpose, our new building, is to house us. It's to bless us. Our new building is to keep us warm in the winter and dry in the spring rains, to make our fellowship and worship and all the ministries there easy. Right now, our building restricts us, doesn't it? I've used the analogy before. It's like an 18-year-old trying to fit into his 11-year-old pants. That's our building right now. It's tight. It restricts us. It hinders us. Our new building shouldn't do that. It's to bless us. But infinitely more important than that is our fellowship, our relationship, our walking in faithful obedience to God. So let's take 1 Kings six twelve a moment. I just want to dig in there a little bit. I'm doing this to encourage. 
I want you to take with you a renewed commitment to walking and growing obedience to the Lord. I want you to take in there an unwillingness to excuse or pardon your sin. A renewed commitment to hate your sin, to put your sin to death, and to walk in growing, glad, faith-driven obedience to our Lord because you love Him. That's what I want to do. So here we see in 1 Kings 6.12 that Solomon is exhorted and God's people through Solomon are exhorted to walk in God's commands, to obey His rules, to keep His commandments. And some of you might say, but that's the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't say things like that. And I just want to simply say, have you read the New Testament? You know, there's more commands there than here. There's no difference. God is the same from forever until forever. What what God has said to Solomon applies to us. Now, let's dig in that. He says, walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep my commandments. Walk implies that lives are being lived here. God's people must live their lives and we must live our lives in love and fear of God more than anything else. We must walk in His commands. We must take them with us wherever we go. Moses tells fathers in Deuteronomy 5 and 6 to Talk about God's commands everywhere at all times, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you're eating. We as Christians submit to God's lordship in everything. There's no area of our lives that we keep separate from our obedience and fear of God. We're to walk in them. We're to root out all areas of our lives and our hearts that we keep distant from the Lord. We need to evaluate everything in light of them. We just went through an election cycle. Did you take your Christianity with you to the polling place? Did you evaluate voting in light of Scripture? Walk implies also that this isn't a once and done. That the Christian life is, and this is cliche, and it makes me sick sometimes how much it's used, but it's true. It's a journey. It's... It's not a thing that you get done real quick right away. It's a, it's a lifelong commitment. It's a growing obedience. It's a growing leaning in the right direction. Your sanctification will not be done overnight. It'll take a lifetime. That is another way to say a Christian is somebody who's growing in repentance and obedience over a lifetime. You are not a Christian if you are not growing in repentance and obedience. You can sing all the songs you want. You can pray all the prayers you want. If you do not love the Lord enough to hate your sin and grow in obedience, you just simply are not a believer. And I would urge you to turn to him in repentance, to get some help from another brother or sister in this church and grow. Now, when God exhorts God's people to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules, and keep my commandments, we ought to get straight that this includes repentance. We know as believers this does not mean mean perfection. Though we've been freed from the power of sin, 
the old nature is still tempted by sin, and we will still sometimes sin. John writes in 1 John that if you say without sin, you're a liar. (laughs) I, I think the Bible is so helpful. It calls us liars when we're liars. It doesn't varnish anything. So when, when, when God says walk before me, he's not talking perfection. It includes repentance here. A normal part of your life as a believer should be repenting of your sin. Owning it. Not, no excuses. No blame. God, I did this and I was wrong. Please forgive me. You'll notice that Three times in this text, the pronoun my is used. If you walk in my statutes, you obey my rules. If you keep my commandments, four times actually, then I will establish my word. This gets to the very heart of the doctrine of what we believe about this. Right? Pastor Jeff said we want to take this with us. What is this? This is God's word. All of it. 66 books. All of it. Eternal, true, without error, unfailing, holy, just, and loving. To disobey or disregard one word of it is to disobey and disregard God himself. The book of Deuteronomy, and again at the end of Revelation, to add one word to it or to subtract one word from it is to call down all of the curses of God upon yourself because it's all God's holy word. We will, as a church, take all of it with us. We will never, ever, ever, so long as God gives us breath, misuse, soften, nuance, any word of it because it's God's. We do not have the authority. We are not smart enough. This is the thing that's plaguing the church is churches that put up with soft, easy, compartmentalizing parts of God's word. See, the error in the church isn't teaching error. It's refusing to teach all of it. What you'll see in singing and in preaching and in teaching, it's, it's right what they're saying. It's what they won't say. We won't do that as a church. We cannot do that as a church. Brothers and sisters, if I ever skip over anything in a text, you ought to knock my door down. Because I am, going, I am saying what I think is better than what God thinks. We will not do that. Why? Because they're, God said they're my words. They're my words. Jesus said, if you're ashamed at even one of my words, my father will be ashamed of you. We will not do that, brothers and sisters. The very definition of disobedience is to disobey God's word. See, the problem throughout Scripture is that humans take it upon themselves to listen to themselves or to the world more than what God says. This is what Adam and Eve did, right? Right? 
Eve, instead of submitting to her husband and obeying God's word, listened to Satan. Adam, instead of defending his wife, taking the punishment upon him, listened to a serpent and to his own little emasculated self and blamed his wife. And you and I do the same thing frequently. The disciples, the apostles, when faced with death or obedience to God, looked death in the face and said, you tell me what is right, to obey your word or to obey God's. This is the kind of hardness, firmness, masculinity we need as a people. Again, this is the thing plaguing the church in America. So we make all kinds of accommodations. We are so soft in regards to truth. Lastly, in this verse, we have the issue of obedience to God's word. Walk in a life lived. We have the reality that it is God's word. And then God uses the second person pronoun, you. You walk in my statutes. You obey my rules. You keep all my commands. Brothers and sisters, he's addressing you. He's addressing you. He's addressing you. Are you bringing your life willingly under obedience to God and His Word in the details, in the small things of your life? This is the definition of humility, brothers and sisters. Humility, as I've said many times before, isn't thinking badly about yourself. Humility isn't self-deprecation. Humility is thinking highly of God in His Word. Humility is a man or a woman or a child being unmovable before God's Word. That's what the world calls pride. Christians are often tagged with the label of arrogant or prideful because they refuse to um, soften God's truth. Amen. You ought to be the most prideful and arrogant person in the world according to that definition. Isaiah 66 2 says, God will look to him who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. The biblical definition of humility is a man or woman who trembles at God's word. Who trembles at God's word. Young people, look at me. Young, yeah, talking under 20, under 80. Hey, you're being raised in a Christian church. You're hopefully being raised by parents who are strongly Christian in all of their life. The one thing that you must do 
is take this word upon yourself and tremble at it. You can't inherit that from your mom or dad. You can't infuse that from your church. You yourself have to own this kind of humility before the Lord of trembling at his word. You and your life are going to face temptations and struggles that we have not had to face, pressures that we have not had to face. And the one thing that you must do is tremble at God's word. You can laugh at anybody. You can stand up to anything as long as you are standing on God's word. God looks to those in Isaiah 66 too. God will look to him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that God just has you in his eyesight. It means that he's keeping you. He's protecting you. He is securing you. He is blessing you. Only if you look to his word and are contrite and tremble before it. That's the kind of life to build. That's what we want from you. That's, the, that's what we want to take to our new building. This is the definition of love in Scripture, not only of humility, it's of love. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Do you understand that? Loving God isn't just a matter of saying it. Loving God isn't just a matter of singing it. Loving God isn't just a matter of working up some emotion for it. Those things are true. But even more so, loving God is loving Him and obeying Him. Kids, you do not love your mom and dad if you're a rat disobeying them all the time. You obey them when you love them. Why? Because you look at them and see in your mom or dad, as you would in God, somebody who's worthy of obedience. That's love. And that love for God is often seen in how you treat other people in the Bible. Your actual love for God should be evaluated on how you actually love and serve other human beings that are seated right around you, that have the, share the same address as you, how you speak to them, how you feed them, how you correct them and take their correction, how you defend them. So that's what we want to take with us. What do we want to leave behind? Well, for that, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 13, if you would. If you're new to the Bible, Jeremiah is just to the right of the center of the Bible. If you'd open to the center and go a few books to the right, you'll find Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 13, 1 to 11. Oh. You'll notice at the top heading it says the ruined loincloth. God has given Jeremiah something that he should do here. We're not going to get into the details of it. But at the very end of it, at the end of verse 10, he says, They shall be like this loincloth which is good for nothing. Other translations say worthless. This is telling God's people what it means to be useful and worth something and what it means to be worthless. Another way to say it is God has saved you and I for a purpose. That purpose is in verse 11. Second half. That they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Our worth isn't anything but whether or not we're living unto God's glory. 
that we're actually a praise to him. We want to live our lives in such a way that we are a praise to God, that we bring God glory. And when we fail at that, when, when, when our overall tenor is opposite than that, then we become, in God's sight, it says here, worthless. I know that can be hard. Some of you grew up with a dad who said things like that to you. This isn't, God isn't here saying this for just sin. You're going to sin. God is saying this when God's people become so prideful in themselves that they disregard his word and elevate their own thinking above it. And that becomes their pattern. That becomes their walk. Look at what he says in verse 10. This evil people, he's talking about his people, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this lone cough, which is worthless. In verse 9, he says that what he describes in verse 10 is a great pride. The definition of pride. The biblical definition of pride is a refusal to hear God's word and to stubbornly follow your own heart. So much for all of the talk in our world to follow your own heart, right? Just follow your heart, it'll be all right. <laughs> right? That's pride. So, what don't we want to take with us? Pride defined as a refusal to heed God's word, pride defined as a stubborn following of our own internal inclinations and thinking. We want to leave that behind. We want to leave that behind. A little drunkenness is to elevate your own thinking over God's command. We want to leave that behind. A little lust, a little looking at a woman desiring to bed her and thinking that's okay is worldly stubbornness to obey God's word. And we want to leave that behind. The refusal of a father and mother to do the Christian duties at home and devotions and discipline and prayer for their children upon which our culture and our church depend, excusing themselves, thinking Juana will do it, thinking Sunday school will do it, thinking somebody else will take care of my kid. That is a refusal to hear God's word and a stubbornly fall of your own heart, which is pride, and we want to leave that behind. A wife unwilling to submit to her husband. Excusing it because he's just not quite the man that I want him to be. Is a refusal to hear God's word, a stubborn following of your own heart, which is a great pride. And we want to leave that behind. A lack of care of God's people. Not practicing hospitality excusing it because of the size of your house or the busyness of your life. 
It's a refusal to hear God's word and a stubbornly following your heart. And we want to leave that behind. And we could go on and on here, right? We have PhDs at Christians of excusing our own sin and not dealing with them in all areas of life. And we want to leave those behind. Why? Because we do not exist for ourselves. We exist to be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory for God. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So do not love the world. Our building cannot become an idol. I don't think it will be. It's just a tool for us to make disciples who are growing in repentance and obedience to the Lord. Why? Because one day, each one of us will stand before God. You will give an account to God. I will give an account to God. 1 John 2, 8 says, Whoever does the will of God will live forever. Whoever does the will of God will live forever. That's what we want to take with us there. Of people who love to do God's will, who when they fail, repent of it, but love to do God's will because they want to be in heaven with God. That's what we want to take with us. That's what we want to take with us. We want to leave behind stubborn refusals to obey God's word. We want to take with us a growing, glad submission to God and his world, to God's leadership in the church, to the preaching of God's word, to the teaching of God's word. We're going to leave the other behind without excuse, with joy. So don't forget the word you there in 1 Kings 6. Don't forget that. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who does walk in your commands who do obey your rules, who do keep all of your commandments, and that your blessing would be upon us. And so, God, grant us those kind of hearts. Grant us those kind of inclinations, desires, commitments. Help us as elders to shepherd and discipline your church in that direction. Please, God, give us this kind of heart. We want it so that we would be a praise and a glory to your great name, for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close in song here.